0: Leadership Journal ran an article a few years ago by uh, Pastor Chris Erdman. He was talking about how there can often be just in in the day to day as we go through our our daily responsibilities and and uh, patterns for daily life, just that that longing for for great things. And he talks about how. Oftentimes it's, it's our longing for, for great things that sets us up for, for disappointment because great isn't necessarily the great that we had anticipated. He says we find God's presence in surprising places. Today, for example, I, I visited Mary and uh, it was the first time that I saw her in her new home. Just a few days earlier, she was moved from the hospital to a nursing home, a move that she dreaded. In fact, it was a move that she fought tooth and nail. She never planned to spend her golden years in a nursing home. You see, a stroke had partially paralyzed one side of her body. She uh, doesn't speak the way that she wants to. This is a woman who's used to serving others, and she's been forced to swallow her pride. She must learn to receive. And so as I walked down the hallways of the nursing home, my eyes searched for that familiar face, And there she is. Well, Mary, I holler out. I receive a bright smile, twinkling eyes, a warm hug. And in this unguarded moment, Mary's speech is perfectly clear. It's when she tries the hardest that things just get kind of garbled up. Mary desperately wants to talk, but she can't. Her her desperation only makes her more frustrated. And after a few attempts at conversation, I suggest that we wander down to the activity center. I tell her, Mary, I, I have a gift for you. You see, several years ago, Mary gave me a gift. It was her poetry. Mary's poetry is not merely a collection of pretty verses, but an expression of heartfelt devotion to Jesus. It's a window into a saint's heart. Today, I want to return the gift. I can't give Mary back her speech, but I can give her the gift of memories. Her eyes betray her eagerness as I open the envelope, and I begin to read the first poem. And after just a few words, her eyes brighten and she leans forward and, 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 and a question forms on her lips. Yes, Mary, it's yours, I tell her. She smiles and then she laughs. For the next half hour, we read poems and prayers together. We laugh and we worship together. Surrounded by wheelchairs and white hair, loneliness and boredom, we feel the presence of Jesus. Down here in the valley, among the ordinary tasks of the day, a bit of heaven opens up. You see, God meets us ordinary people in ordinary places. It's such a great reminder for us as we continue on our journey through Lent. Journey with Jesus. I, I'm just not sure that there is a, a better word to describe the life of Jesus, then ordinary, compared to the life that he lived prior to his coming to earth, an ordinary life. Jesus, the one of whom Paul, you know the words, writes to the Colossians, all things in heaven and on earth were made by him and for him. That Jesus, the creator of the universe, left the glory of heaven, wrapped himself in flesh, born as a baby to a couple that no one had ever heard of, in a place that no one cared about, lived a nondescript life as far as we know for about 30 years before he was baptized by an eccentric prophet, began his earthly ministry that lasted about three years, And ended with his death on the cross. Is it any wonder that God met Pastor Chris and Mary that day in that nursing home? Are you kidding? That's exactly the kind of places that we find God. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice from start to finish. And in this Lenten season, we... We work our way towards Holy Week and we walk with Jesus to the cross and, and we focus upon that ultimate sacrifice which is appropriate and we should. But our journey in these Sundays of, in, in Lent have been to, to look at the sacrifices that Jesus made just living his life here on planet Earth as he journeyed towards the cross. What a contrast this life must have been to the life that he had prior to coming to earth. But we know that it was because of, of God's love, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that Jesus came in the flesh to live a perfect human life of surrender to the will of the Father. Led and empowered by the Spirit so that he could die on that cross as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin, our our rebellion against God that is resident in the heart of every human being. That's the Jesus that we have been journeying with. And as his followers, we're, we're called to be like him. Who among us would disagree? Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. John said that those who claim to know Jesus will walk as he walked. They will be like Jesus in the world. We, we know that. So if we're serious about making him known to those in this world who don't know him, then we, can, we must expect the Spirit to lead us as he led Jesus into those places that will test our hearts. Remember, following Jesus is so often a test of the heart. Who are we going to live for? We know that the tests that Jesus faced were as real as the tests that we face. And that his fully human heart wrestled with the temptations that we wrestle with. To live in a way to find the easy way out. To to circumvent the the path that his father had laid out for him to to gain the recognition that, that he so rightly deserved rather than surrender his human will to the plan of his father. And thanks be to God that he did. Where would we be had he not? No cross, no death, no resurrection, and no redemption. So Jesus is... Our example, and we've been with him so far in the wilderness and in Samaria. Neither of those places we know are vacation destinations. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and we learned from Jesus. We listened as he chose not to use his power to satisfy his physical desires, nor to to please a crowd of potential eager followers. He was committed to living his life according to the plan of his father. And we heard him say those words at that final temptation, away from me, Satan, as he refused to give any part of his heart away. He was unwilling to compromise, even temporarily. His life was about a wholehearted surrender to the will of his father, though it meant incredible sacrifice, suffering, hardship along the way. The wilderness was certainly a place of sacrifice, as was Samaria. I believe it was the Spirit who led him to Samaria, and we we listened and we learned from Jesus as he initiated conversation with a a Samaritan. A Samaritan woman. That's, That's strike one and strike two, who had been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband, and quite likely she was an outcast with her own people. That was strike three. If Jesus was looking for Messiah popularity points, he struck out. But I think, I hope that we're learning that Jesus was not seeking to score Messiah popularity points. He was intent, he was passionately intent upon living for the glory of his Father. That's what Jesus was about. told his followers, you remember, that, that he did nothing on his own. Only what he saw, only what he heard from the Father. So this morning we're going to journey with Jesus to another place. A place that we often call the Upper Room, a journey with Jesus to the night of his betrayal. And I think we should assume that as in every other situation in his life, there is the leading of the Spirit of God to that place. And there is empowering of the Spirit of God in that place. And knowing the desire that Jesus lived out for the glory of his Father and the praise of his Father, once again... Jesus is going to rock the world of his followers. So this time, as we, uh, as we stand and read together, this time with his example comes a, a very specific verbal instruction. We haven't seen that in either of our other two examples, but he has a specific instruction for his followers. So, so listen for that instruction, okay? Let's stand and let's read from John 13 together. Here we go. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon replied, Not just my feet but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. So, were you listening for that verbal instruction? Did you catch it? Anybody? What did did Jesus say? Wash each other's feet. Do it. Do it. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. What is happening here, I think, is, is really significant. It is really powerful. And we get a sense of that, from Peter's reaction, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I don't know how many of you have ever been a part of a foot washing service. It's often a part of of Holy Week, Monday, Thursday foot washing service. And if we're honest, we'll admit to some feelings of discomfort. To, uh, To bow before another person and to touch their feet is a rather intimate and threatening thing. And so there's, there, there's that that's going on, but, but here's the reality. When we wash one another's feet at, say, a ceremonial foot-washing service, I'll bet you we've all washed our feet before we came. <laughs> because it would really concern me that you might touch my dirty, smelly feet. And so I make sure that my feet are clean Uh, Foot washing in those days, friends, not ceremonial, not clean feet. It was practical, it was necessary, because people walked in sandals, open-toed sandals, or they were barefoot, and they walked through dirty, dusty, muddy, if it had been raining, streets, same streets, by the way, that horses and donkeys pulled carts up and down and Pooped in the streets, and you get the picture. Those were the streets that the disciples' feet had been walking on. person's feet got really dirty and really smelly. And so it probably shouldn't come as a surprise to us that in the households that had slaves, could afford slaves, washing feet was regarded as a demeaning task, and it was reserved for typically the lowest slave in the household pecking order. What an honor, huh? And if guests were to enter into a home or a setting where perhaps there there were no slaves, it was not unusual for a basin of water and a towel to be available so that they could wash their own feet if they chose to. So in this setting, we find Jesus and his followers, and and it would appear that that neither of those things happened. At least, there are no slaves there to to wash feet. And we might be tempted to think that, well, maybe there, there wasn't any water set out there so that the disciples could wash their own feet. Or maybe there was. Because Jesus came up with a basin and some water. Maybe it was more that no one volunteered for that nasty task. And I tend to think that's what was going on. I think the other Gospels give us an indication that Jesus had instructed his followers to, to go and prepare for this meal. And and in that culture, one of the preparations would very likely have included some, some water and a basin. for for washing the feet, would have been part of the prep. So can't you just picture the disciples as they're setting up for the meal? Looking at that basin and thinking, gosh, I wonder who's going to do that. Because it's certainly not going to be me. I think that what was going through their mind was this is a servant's role and none of us is a servant. None of us is going to take on that role. We, we are followers of the master. Luke records for us that the disciples began to, to argue during the meal about which of them would be considered the greatest yeah, I read that and I think, really, again? I I think that was their favorite argument. They they do it often. There were, there were definitely no candidates for foot washer in that bunch. And so we find ourselves with Jesus and his disciples in a setting where, where a pre-meal practice, typical, common, everyday, has not happened. And for whatever reason, it might seem... It might seem like a small thing at first glance, but I, but I hope that's not what you're hearing there. It's not a, oops, I forgot to wash my hands before the meal. There is a whole lot more going on there, and Jesus knows that there is a whole lot more going on there. And surprised as we always are, right? Jesus is going after the heart. He is after the <laughs> conditions that are, that are making the soil of a person's heart either hard or receptive to who he is and to the life that he has called them to. And John tells us, as we read, that during the meal, Jesus got up and he took off his outer clothing. Now, in that society, men typically dressed in three layers of clothing. There was an undergarment or their underwear. There was typically over that a long shirt or a tunic-like garment. And then over that was the, the outer robe a cloak or or a coat. So, make sure that you get the image. There stands Jesus in his underwear in the midst of his followers. Here's something else you need to know. The slaves in a household were often relegated to wearing their underwear. It was a statement of identity. It was a visual identity of who belonged in what place. So let me ask you, do you think he's got the attention of his disciples at this point? Oh my. Oh my. It was a clear message. Look at me. I have something for you to learn. And I think that is in part why Peter reacted so strongly to Jesus' actions. No, you shall never wash my feet. One commentator puts this spin on it. Peter's response was, never to all eternity will you wash my feet. We might say something like, when hell freezes over, you'll wash my feet. That's the sentiment that is behind Peter's expression. I think he struggled, as did all of the followers, to to really understand who Jesus was. But one thing he was sure of, Jesus should not degrade himself by assuming such a position. In fact, he might even be thinking, would you put your clothes back on for pity's sake? On this journey, we've been looking for ways in which Jesus might have been tempted to give in to the desires of his human heart. Ways that that we can relate to. Because we know that Jesus was tempted in every way. Like we are. And yet he was without sin. He did not give in. Instead, he surrendered to the will of his Father in all the situations. Did Jesus know what he was doing when he stood up and stripped down before his disciples? You can believe he did. Do you think the enemy was there in his ear? absolutely the enemy was there in his ear. Saying things like, Oh, Jesus, I don't think you want to do this. Jesus, this this could be embarrassing. Or, you know, Jesus, you who are the Lord and the Master, you deserve better than this. And look at this crowd. They don't deserve to have you wash their feet. Oh, and by the way, Jesus... Did you forget Judas is sitting here? The one who's going to betray you? Yeah, that Judas. Don, can we put our slide up? Look at that one text again, and then I want you to just talk for a minute with your neighbor about the question. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Give some thought to the connection between those two statements. Why do you think, and remember, John is writing this years later. He's reflecting back on this night. Why do you think John links Jesus' knowledge of his father's activity, Jesus knew the father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God was returning to God. Why do you think John links that knowledge that Jesus had with taking off his outer clothing? I think they go together. Talk with your neighbor for just a minute. See what they think. Okay, are we ready? Did you hear any nuggets from your neighbor? Is there a connection, Doug? What do you think? Okay. Yeah. They'd certainly been arguing about that, hadn't they? (laughs) Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And if we really think about that, we might might have an answer. (laughs) Kathy, what do you think? Confidence in knowing that he'd come from God. Okay. No appearance is necessary. Yeah. What else? Other thoughts? Comments? Yes. Yes. Another example of him, you know, kingdom values come crashing into their their cultural norms. Exactly. (laughs) Now there is an honest confession of our hearts. (laughs) Thank you, Nat. Yes. And and I I think you're, you're right on when you consider that what Jesus was saying about the power, all things were under his power knew that he had come from God, that he was going back from God, if I could add a word to it, I would say Jesus was ultimately secure. There was no question in the mind of Jesus who he was, who his father was, who he was in relationship to his father, and there was no question in his mind what his father had called him to do and how his father had called him to live. Karen, you wanted to to add a comment? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he chose, I think, out of great confidence in, in his father's goodness, his father's faithfulness, the, the, the rightness of his father's plan. You know, and I, I look at situations like this and I think, man... Jesus knows something about the Father that we don't necessarily know or get in those times that we are doubting, those times when we are fearful, those times when we are are insecure and and looking to to be served and to, to have others esteem us and exalt us. Jesus shows no need for that in this situation. His ability to lower himself to the place of that lowest household servant knowing full well that his disciples probably thought at least for a moment or two that he was crazy, was a result of the confidence that he had in his father and the relationship that he had as son. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Philippians 2. When he exhorts the Philippian believers, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather... He made himself nothing. That's how Paul describes Jesus coming to earth and taking on human flesh. Made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And one of the mysteries you know that we affirm in the incarnation is that Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh, fully God and fully human. And at one point in his early ministry, Jesus told his followers, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I think Jesus' favorite description of himself was Son of Man. He referred to himself as, as that more than anything else. His identification with our humanity, with our frail flesh. But the Son of Man didn't come to be served, he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason that he was able to do that was because he was confident in who he was. He was the eternal son when he came to earth. He lived his life on earth as the eternal son in human flesh. And after his death and his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven and guess what? He was still the eternal son. It never changed who he was. Jesus coming to earth and wrapping himself in flesh simply changed his appearance and changed his location. And I... I think that that's where the the, the lesson is in this story for us. Jesus lowered himself to a place of humble service because he was confident in who he was. And I think, again, just speculation on my part, I think that's also perhaps what is at work behind Peter's response coming from deep inside of him where he was concerned and suspicious came this this fear that Jesus was going to make a point that they needed to follow. I can almost hear him thinking, oh no. Oh no. Here we go again. Please Jesus. Not this. Not this. This is what servants do. Haven't you called us to more than this, Jesus? Jesus? Surely you don't think about the great things that we signed on for and following you, the great things of your kingdom, and then swirling around in his head and and his emotions are concerns having to do with risk and vulnerability and pride and embarrassment. I think all of those things were flowing through his mind. And sure enough, we would expect no less, right? That's exactly where Jesus went with it. I think He was using the simple, common, courteous posture of foot washing to illustrate the life to which he calls his followers. Humble service. Doing those things that need to be done. Doing those little things that Don't warrant appreciation. Do you think any of the the, the servants in the household who were the foot washers in the day got thanked for what they did? Think they got tipped for what they did? I don't even know if they got a promotion for what they did. And if you're a servant, well, how good's the promotion? Jesus' point to his followers was clear. The master... And the teacher, and he said, you're right. That's what you call me. That is who I am. Master and teacher lowered himself. And as the master does, so do the followers. Because Jesus understood and lived in his father's perfect, loving care. He was able to serve others freely and sacrificially. He gave himself to people. He never feared what he he would lose because he had nothing to lose. He never feared what others might think because it didn't matter what they thought. He didn't concern himself whether they would be confused about his true identity in those low moments of service because nothing changed that true identity. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you and I, brothers and sisters of Jesus, we find ourselves on a daily basis under the loving watch care of the same Father that Jesus was concerned about. His Father is our Father. Jesus calls us to do the same as he did, not because it's a nice thing to do, although it often is a nice thing to do. He calls us to that because it is an opportunity to live out confidently the Father's love that has been bestowed upon us. I love the way one commentator says it. Jesus disrobed, he donned the garb of a household slave, washed their feet, and by the time he finished, that towel was brown with dirt and manure stains. That is the life of serving. We find ourselves covered with mess and inconvenience and stuff. Oh, This is the pits. Really, Jesus? To which he says, yeah, yeah, really. That's the life I was called to. That's the life I call you to. That's what we can expect from serving others. It's not great stuff. It's service. It's not being appreciated. It's service. It's not being recognized. It's not being awarded. It's service. It's recognizing others the same way that Jesus recognized them as image bearers of God in need of God's love. And Jesus so so many times. Not only did he become that channel of God's love on the cross, but but a bazillion times before he got to the cross, he was the channel of God's love through his his actions and his words. Oh, and don't forget Judas was there. That skunk that traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus, Jesus washed his feet too. Just a few hours before that, louse would betray him. And he knew it. Serving is really not doing things for others that they deserve. It's doing things for others so that we can demonstrate To them, God's love and his character in all that we do, all that we say. So praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we respond this morning. We can expect, my friends, to find God in our actions of service. Jesus, you heard those closing words. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What an amazing promise. To be blessed by God because we are striving to be like Jesus. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Lord Jesus. Oh, we admit that like the disciples His examples, his teachings, his life, his daily humility and love of others uh, boggles our mind and stretches our heart and pushes us to places that are really uncomfortable sometimes. But we, like Jesus, are empowered by your Spirit. And therefore, we have no excuses other than Just fear and not wanting to, to be like Jesus. So we pray that as your spirit empowers us to be like Christ, your spirit will also fill us with courage, fill us with wonderful reminders of the truth of who we are. That there is nothing that separates us from your love, nothing that separates us from your presence. That there is nothing hard that we go through that you are absent in. No, God may we become more and more like the Lord Jesus, humbling ourselves and serving others, doing whatever needs to be done for your great glory and praise. We ask in Jesus' name.